Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. Do you find it difficult to live godly when everyone around you is not? You're not alone, and it's not a new problem. Over 2,500 years ago, a teenager was forced to live in exile in one of the most ungodly cultures the earth has ever seen. Despite the challenges and persecution, he found a way to honor God in everything he did. His example is still powerful for us today. Join us now for a six-part series on Daniel as we learn to live life in exile. All right, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Grace Life. You guys doing well? Yeah. Who's excited about Marty on October 7th? If you don't know Marty, this is actually his home church. He goes here at least twice a year. The reason for that is because he's doing comedy at churches the other 50 weeks a year, and so he's been around Grace Life forever, and he, just like you, wants to see us get into the new building, and so he came with the idea, why don't we do a comedy show, and half of the, the proceeds from the ticket sales will go to the building fund, and the other half will feed his family, which is what it's supposed to do anyway, so yeah, isn't that cool? All right, good, so um, if you don't want to come, just buy a ticket, and that'll be fine. Hey, we're in a series on Daniel today as part two. We kicked off the series last week. Uh, it was going to be a six-part series walking through the first six chapters of Daniel. The reason we're doing this is because if I think all through the Bible, all of the different people there, all of the different stories, I think Daniel definitely relates in the top five for us today. What are we facing? What are we living through? What is life like? He is more closely related to where we are today than anyone. And so last week we kicked off the series with this idea, and it's the, the cornerstone idea of the entire series. You and I, if we are Christians, we are a minority in exile. We live as a minority in exile. And so I'm, let me give you just a real quick review on what that looks like. So uh, first of all, in, in order for us to relate to Daniel, we have to know what we have in common with him. And I'm going to start by telling you what we don't have in common with him. Daniel lived in a nation... It was the nation of Judah, which was the southern half of Israel. He was an Israelite. And then the greatest nation on the earth, Babylon, and King Nebuchadnezzar came and conquered them. And they carried Daniel off in chains into exile to live in Babylon. We do not have this in common. And so many of us may wonder, are we really living in exile? Are we really a minority? What does this story have to do with me? Well, I took the entire last week the part one to help us understand that and uh it'd be good for you to hear that if you didn't hear that but i'm gonna go ahead and give you just a real quick two minute kind of uh summary and that is this we live in a world where the dominant culture is not our culture the dominant culture is not our culture because the world around us is a post-christian world what that means is that many many centuries ago people would make decisions kings would make decisions and culture would would write plays and do things based upon the values of the bible before someone would do something they'd say what does god say about this there are actually kings and politicians and government that are known for what they did to glorify god but we live in a world where that's not so much the case anymore and, and America has also become a post-Christian nation. We were among the slowest of those nations to get there. Europe beat us to it. And because we live in the Bible Belt, we're among the slowest parts of America to get there. But if we look around, to prove my point, politics, culture, mainstream, anything does not base and decide what it's doing based upon the Bible. So here's the question. When was the last time that we saw a law passed in the United States because it was a biblical value? Or someone said, no, we're not going to suggest that law because it's not a biblical value. Or a movie was being written in Hollywood and someone said, oh, oh, we got to cut that scene. That scene wouldn't line up with biblical values, right? See, that stuff doesn't happen. So the point to that is we live as a minority among a majority around us that have a different, here are the words, primary 
designation. You see, if your primary designation is Christian, then the culture around you is not your dominant culture. And, and we need to just make sure we understand, I love America. I'm going to say this every single week for six weeks. I don't want anybody thinking that I'm, I'm saying anything else. America is a great nation. We are fortunate to be able to live here. We are very blessed here. So I'm not, not bashing America by simply saying that every decision for what's good for America is not the same decision as what's good as a Christian. Is everybody good with that? Makes sense. So we live as a minority in exile if that's our primary designation. Now, you all have many designations. You might be a father, you might be a mother, you might be a husband, a spouse, a child, you might be uh, a boss, a CEO, you might be Scotch-Irish, you might be African-American, you might be American. We've all got many designations. And so if your primary designation is red-blooded American, instead of your primary designation being Jesus bled for me Christian, you'll catch that then you can go ahead and go to lunch because you don't need this. But if your primary designation or you're here to at least explore the idea that your primary designation is Christian, member of God's kingdom, I want to know more about that. What does that look like? Then that's what we're talking about. And some of, somebody would give me some pushback on the idea that we're the minority. They'd say, hey, Jimmy, have you not seen the census? It's like 86% Christian in America. Well, you need to understand when the census asks the question, are you a Christian? And someone says, yes, that doesn't mean they actually are. Most people don't even know what it means to recognize Jesus died for you and you live for him. It doesn't mean that they worship regularly or they read their Bible or they know anything. What it means when they answer that question is, no, I'm not a Muslim and no, I'm not an atheist. Therefore, I'm a Christian. And so even though the statistics say that we're surrounded by Christians, hopefully you can look, you can observe, and you can tell that if you live with Jesus as your king, you're a minority. And you live in exile, even in the very world that you're raised up in. And, uh, you know, my first experience was this, with, with discovering this process was in fourth grade. There was a kid named Kevin who moved in. And, and I grew up in, in an obscure little southern town called Clover, South Carolina. Anybody ever heard of Clover, South Carolina? And it was known because that's where the trains would stop when they saw all the clover. That's how obscure of a town it was. You just stopped by the clover patch. And so I grew up here in the Bible Belt, very little backwoods town. Uh, it was close to Charlotte. And so I thought that everybody was just like me. It was in fourth grade when the first kid moved in who was not like everybody else. And, and his name was Kevin. How cool is that? Kevin. Jimmy. Kevin. My parents didn't have it going on, but here's how I knew Kevin was cool, because he had what everybody else wanted. I'm going to have you date yourself here. Who knows what I'm talking about? He wore a members only jacket. He already had one. There you go. Oh yeah, he had the deal. And his mother was a television star. She was on TV and was doing some filming in Charlotte. That's how they ended up there. And so we're all like, hey, Kevin, where do you go to church? He's like, what? We don't go to church. Well, dude, how do you not go to church? I mean, like, how do you worship God? We don't believe in God. <gasps> I mean, I backed up like lightning was going to hit this kid. Like, oh my gosh, dude. Hey, don't you know where churches are? They're all around here. Can we invite you? I mean, it was the first time in my life I discovered that everybody was not just like me. And ever since the fourth grade, I've been discovering that Kevin is not alone. That actually more people live in America and do not worship God as God than there are us. And so this idea of our primary designation changing, you know, you would say, but I'm an American. I was born in America. Jimmy, I don't get the point here. Well, follow this with, I'm going to give you an analogy with my wife. My wife I, was my translator when I was a missionary in Romania. She was a Romanian citizen born in Romanian culture. And then she came with me to America. 
And she wanted to be one of us. How cool is that? She wanted to be like y'all. She's like, come on, can I say y'all? Can I learn how to do that? And so she became an American citizen, and she makes chocolate chip cookies and chili, and she flies a red flag on her house, blue, right, and blue, red, white, and blue, that's it, on July 4th. I mean, she's, she's there. So here's the thing. Yes, she was born into a culture, but she was reborn into a new culture. And you and I may be born into an American culture, but then we are reborn into a kingdom culture when we come to know Jesus as our king, and that becomes our primary designation. So everybody understand? That's kind of our cornerstone of the series. And so here's the question for us today. We're going to talk about the idea of compromise and watch how Daniel handled this. It's a story about compromise, actually. And so here are two questions that you and I have to ask if we're going to succeed at living as a minority in exile is what does the culture around us say about, and then fill in the blank, money, career, schedules, priorities, sex, music, whatever. And then here's the other question. What does God say about the exact same thing? And first of all, not knowing the difference between those two is going to cause us a very big problem, but more importantly, not caring about the difference between the two will be our downfall. We will not be able to live as a minority in exile if we do not care about the difference between God's kingdom and everything else that's around us. And so what we've been doing, as I told you, we're simply walking straight through the book of Daniel. We made it a long way last week, so today we're going to pick up where we left off in verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 3, if you've got your Bibles, you can follow along with me, and if not, it's going to be on the screen behind my head. And the reason we're kind of reading straight through this, which is a little different for us, and the first reason is because not everybody knows these stories very well, and I want to help make sure we understand where it's coming from. So here we go. Daniel has been carried off into exile, verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and then to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. And we're going to go ahead and pause because this is very important for us to see what is going on right here. The first thing we need to see is not all were chosen. Not all were chosen. You get this idea if they were carried off into exile that their home country of Judah is like now a town in a Western movie, and there's just driftwood, uh, 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 what do you call that stuff? Tumbleweed. I got it right in the other two services, my brain just. Tumbleweed just flying across the street, and there's no one there. No, they left people. They left people there. They just didn't live, uh, leave enough people to do any significant difference, to raise up an army or to make a political movement. So some people were literally left behind. And then they carried a bunch of people off to Babylon in exile, but not everybody was getting the opportunity Daniel and his three friends were. Some of them were street sweepers and woodcutters and cooks and, and, and farmers and who knows what else. They made slaves out of them in every way. And so here's the thing that we need to understand about what we see in, in Daniel here. Daniel and his four friends were brought in to give an opportunity, which we're going to learn about in a minute, to serve the king based upon some things they had no control over. Being born into a royal family, being noble, being of, of without blemish. That means his, no, his nose was straight. His teeth were straight. He didn't even have braces. Okay, there you go. And, and so here's the idea we need to understand is God was sovereignly placing Daniel there. It didn't matter if Daniel didn't want to be noble. He was born into a royal family. It didn't matter if Daniel didn't want to look that way. That's the way God made him to look. God was setting Daniel up for this moment. God was preparing Daniel to be in this position to do this very thing. And the question you have to ask yourself is, where has God sovereignly built you, sovereignly prepared you to do what you want or what he has called you to do? 
I mean, I'm a pastor in South Carolina, and if I could tell you the truth, this is not my first choice of place to live. I tried to get out of here. I left. I went away to college. I moved halfway around the world, got a wife there, thought, man, I am good. I will never see South Carolina again. And then one of my friends came to me and prayed a prayer over me. He said, God has saved you from your people to send you to your people. And that's why I can stand up here and say, come on, y'all, we can't live like this because I am one of us. See, God sovereignly prepares you for what he wants you to do. And, And you've got to just stop and say, do I understand that? So when you go to school or when you go to work, when you're there, here's the question, are you just there? I mean, do you go to school, you sit on the back row, like, oh, I hate this class, I don't want to do this, who likes math anyway, it's stupid, I'm not doing my homework, I'm going to, can I skip class tomorrow? Or do you think, God sovereignly created me that I am exactly this age at this moment, living in this town, going to this school, in this class, so who in here did God call me to? Is it that kid over there or is it the teacher? Oh, it's that kid over there. Nobody talks to that kid. You know what? That kid likes punk rock and I do too. (gasps) God's sovereign. And what are you doing with what God has sovereignly done in your life? Man, I tell you what, I was, I only told the other, no, before today, I've never told anyone publicly this. When I was a kid, I wanted to play basketball. I really wanted to play basketball. Badly wanted to play basketball. I was 4'11 when I went to high school. This was not working in my favor. I shot hoops all the time. So this is the true story. When I was a kid, I would sit in my bed at night and do what the Bible says. I would lay hands on my legs and pray they would grow. I did. But it wasn't what God had for me. He didn't want me in the NBA. He wanted me standing right here on this stage doing what I'm doing today. And I had to accept my sovereign foundation is to be 5'5". There you go. It's okay. It's what God is sovereignly doing in my life. What is God sovereignly doing in your life? And then what are you doing with what God has given you? Because what we're going to see is The sovereign foundation that God set for Daniel only gave him an opportunity. It didn't give him the end of the story. The end of the story came because Daniel was a good steward of the life he was given. Did you catch those other phrases where he was was learned and, and he was competent to stand before the king? That meant that he actually listened when his parents taught him manners. So he knew how to talk to a king without getting his head cut off. He knew how to say, oh, wise king even though the king was like his captor. I mean, the man knew what he was doing. He knew how to relate to people. He knew how to understand other languages. And he studied and he applied himself and he took what God had sovereignly given him and was faithful with it and did something with it. I'm gonna stop for a second because I want to ask this question. Raise your hand if you are under 18 in the room right now. Everyone under 18 in the room, raise your hand. Here, I want you to pay attention to me more today than everybody else. Here's the reason. Daniel is between 13 and 15 years old at this point in the story. Daniel is between 13 and 15 years old. He has been carried off to another nation, and he's about to become one of the most influential people in that nation for the the rest of his life. He's about to have the ability to sway kings, and he's a teenager. He's like 14 years old. So let's pick up the story right there. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, And then they were to be educated for three years. This is the opportunity I talked about. They're going to have three years to study, do everything, and see who does the best. And at the end of the time, they were to stand before the king. And among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And then the chief of eunuchs gave them new names. We're going to talk a lot about this in a second. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called, um, sorry, Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved. Daniel resolved he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. If you don't know the story, we're going to follow. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. 
And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king who told me to do this. He assigns your food and your drink. Why should he see you're in worse condition than all of the other youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king? I've been told I've got to do this. And then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over them, look, 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 just test your servants for 10 days and let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and then deal with your servants according to what you see. Here's the thing. Daniel took a very big risk and a very big stance all on principle of the way that he wanted to worship his God and what he believed was right. Some people read this and, and some people have even taught that Daniel was trying to honor the Old Testament Levitical way of eating because God had said, my people will eat this way. Matter of fact, if you ever want to read the most fun book in the Bible to put yourself to sleep, go read a Leviticus, right? Leviticus. All right, good. And, and so they were saying Daniel's trying to eat according to Leviticus. No, actually he's not. Because nowhere in the Jewish law or in Leviticus is wine forbidden. He could have had all the wine he wanted. That was not a problem. Then some people say, well, he didn't want to eat the meat because it might have included pork, which was forbidden. Okay, so he could have skipped pork chop day. But what about steak day? I mean, that's a fun day. I like steak day. He could have eaten then. And then people will say, well, no, he didn't do that because he didn't want to eat meat that was sacrificed to other idols. That's the way they would do it. They'd bring in the animal. They'd sacrifice it to their God. Then they would kill it and eat it. We just go eat. You know, we skipped that whole worship step, but that's what they would do. That's how they got their food. Well, that can't quite be true either because they did the same thing with their vegetables and their grains. They would have also dedicated those to the foreign God. So this wasn't so much about Daniel trying to follow Leviticus to the black and white. This was about Daniel recognizing a very important principle. The way that he ate compared to the way that they ate was a cultural and spiritual marker. It said, I'm not like you. You're the majority. I'm the minority in exile. And if I eat like you, you might not be able to see that anymore. Then I won't be a witness to you. I'm going to stand on principle. And then he allowed God to vindicate him. He said, I tell you what. All right, God, here's what I'm going to do. This guy's going to test me in 10 days. It's up to you if this works or not. How cool is that? God, I'm going to stand on principle. But if I'm going to win, it's up to you. You've got to make this thing happen. And that's exactly what Daniel did. And so they ate for 10 days, only the vegetables, so he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Once again, here's the whole point. This is a story of the temptation to compromise. And if I were to ask you right now, how many of you would compromise your faith? Of course not. Who raises their hand to that one? I mean, that's like, hey, everybody look at me. I'm the moron in the group. No, of course not. Nobody's going to raise your hand to that. And, and I want to just say that's because we don't really understand compromise. You see, here's the idea. Compromise is all about gradual assimilation until you don't even recognize that it is a compromise. So let me give you an analogy that can help you out here. So you go to work tomorrow. It's, uh, somebody comes up to you in the morning and says, hey, man, what you doing for lunch? And you're like, well, I figured I was just going to sit at my desk and eat my leftovers I brought from home. Well, that sounds boring. Why don't you come rob a bank with me? Well, I'm not in the habit of committing felonies at lunch, and I don't steal too much as a Christian, so I'm pretty sure I'm going to pass on that one. Thank you. Right? See, that's our idea of compromise. I'd never rob a bank and steal a bunch of money, but it, 
Let me walk you through a better understanding of this. I, I used to work in like a, a little corner drugstore like Walgreens, and so I'm going to show you some stuff I've, I've seen done. So imagine you're the manager. Here's what has to happen at, at, at night. When the store closes up, the manager has to count the, the money tills, the drawers out of, out of each register, and they have to put it in money bags and account for it and whatever. And so let's say the store closes at 11 o'clock, and you had to deal with some, somebody, you know, spilled some juice on aisle three right before the store closed. Now you got to do some mopping, get everything taken care of. And then you finally sit down and you count the money. Next thing you know, it's now 1232 and you want to be in bed, but you can't be in bed. So you count all the money and you've put all the money sheets in, you sealed all the money bags, you put them in the safe and you look at the floor and there's a dime, 10 cents. And you're thinking to yourself, you know, well, first of all, I've had to stay like an hour and a half extra. And second of all, we weren't even a dime short, so it's probably mine. I probably dropped it and just didn't even notice it. You pick up the dime, you put it in your pocket. A couple of weeks later, you're doing the same thing. You're counting the money, and you get to this point where you you discover at the very end there's one dollar too much. Somebody, when they were doing their register, did not give back a dollar in change correctly, and so there's a dollar too much. It's okay, not a big deal. We're going to write it up with an overage form. Oh, I'm out of overage forms. How do I get overage forms? Well, I've either got to go online and the internet's down, can't do that, could call the district manager, but I think they're at a conference on the West Coast. I'm going to have to drive an hour to the warehouse distribution center where they've got more overage forms so I can fill that out for a dollar. Oh, I don't think so. We're not doing all that. After all, now it's 1245. I should be at home. This dollar is overtime, buddy. You take the dollar. And it's not a big deal because, after, I mean, who's going to notice a dollar? I mean, it's a $4 billion a year industry or something like that. And who's going to notice $1 that wasn't even supposed to be there? It belonged in somebody else's pocket, so we're just going to pretend they gave it to you. And, and then a couple of weeks later, you're getting ready to close the store once again. And as you're about to walk out, you remember, oh, man, my car is on empty. Like that little orange light has been on three days. Come on, somebody in here does that? Three days. Oh, yeah. That's faith right there. Or stupidity. We'll let you decide which one. It's been on for three days, and you're thinking, and I left my wallet at home. How am I going to get home? You know what? I'm just going to get $20 out of that bag right there because it goes to the bank tomorrow, but I'm opening the store. I mean, I'm closing. I'm opening. I've got a stinky schedule. I at least, you know, I'm just going to take $20, go put cash, put, put money in the, in the, I'm sorry, gas in the car, and, and I'm, I'm going to get out of my wallet. I'll put it back in the morning. And you do. You go. You get gas. The first thing in the morning, you put the money back. No one is the wiser. You didn't steal it. You you just did the right thing. And and everybody's good. And then a couple of months later, you run into some difficulties. You you got behind on some things. Your savings account was kind of gone. And you ended up in a position where now you can't pay your electric bill. You're like three months behind. It's July. You have a new baby. It's too hot for you to not have air conditioning. And and you're going to get paid on Wednesday anyway. So you're just going to take $500 out of what's in the safe, and, and you're going to use that, pay the electric bill, but you're going to put it back when you get paid on Wednesday. It's all good. Don't worry about that. The problem is, on Tuesday night, your wife and your baby get sick, and so you've got to go to the hospital, and you know they've got one of those new rules because everybody just doesn't pay the, with the insurance and all that sort of stuff, and they're like, you need these tests. We can't do this. Do you at least pay your copay? And these are some big tests, expensive tests. We need some money. And the $500 that's in your wallet to put back tomorrow morning, they take from you. And you didn't think the district manager was coming until Friday, but he made a surprise visit on Wednesday morning, and you've got this money bag with $500 missing, and you can lose your job, or you can remember, oh, oh yeah, Billy Ray Joe Bob quit last week. That's right. Hey, you know what? We had $500 get, went missing, for, and I fired him. I fired him. That's what it was. Billy Ray Joe Bob did it. I fired him. Don't worry. We'll, we'll take care of that. It's all good. $500, you write it off. It's gone. See, here's the thing. 
We think compromise is over there, and we say, I would never go over there and rob that bank. Let me ask you a question. How many of you will take one step towards compromise? In the first service, they shouted out, me, because that's the truth. See, here's the thing. You don't have to go over there. You just have to do this. You just have to borrow the dollar, turn the 20 back in tomorrow. You just get a little blurry with lines till you get in a little bit of trouble, and you think you can be a little blurry with the lines again. I have a friend of mine who's actually in prison who used to be a pastor, but he blurred the lines. It was, don't have enough money, and I've got the church checkbook. I'll just buy groceries. We'll put it back. But if you didn't have enough money now, guess what? You don't have enough money later, and you take another step. And then he got into a little sin issue, and he started spending his money in the wrong place, which is the other reason he didn't have it for groceries, and so he took one more step. He's in prison. He's not preaching. He's given up his life because he just kept taking one step. If there's anyone in this room who does not think they will take one step, you are deceived, and you are in trouble. Every single one of us needs to know and to guard against the fact that we will take one step. We will all take one step. You won't go over there and rob a bank, but you will take one step. Here's the problem. When you take one step, now you've got one step less to go to get over there. And if you'll take this step, you'll take one. And now you're two steps less to get over there. This story is about the temptation to compromise. And this is the reason Daniel said, I will not eat your stuff. I will not drink your wine. Because he looked around and he said, you know what? Look at that wine over there. Anybody been to Trader Joe's Two Buck Chuck? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Yep, yep. That was not Trader Joe's Two Buck Chuck stuff over there. This was the king's wine. This was top shelf stuff that he was serving. And the beef was not sirloin tips from Golden Corral. This was filet mignon, right? Okay, this is the king's food. And Daniel is no fool. He says, that's better food than I've ever had in my life. That's the best wine. I, I, I can smell it so good over here. If I drink that wine, if I eat that stuff, I will want it again. And I will be just like you. And then how will I tell you about how I'm different from you and who my God is? You'll look at me and go, you're one of us. You see, what Daniel was trying to resist was this thing called cultural assimilation. And I'm going to show you the four phases of cultural assimilation that are universal. They happen in everything. If you join the military, they're going to try to do this to you. If you go to a college, they're going to do this to you. If you marry into a different uh, culture of family, like uh, my big fat Greek wedding kind of idea, they're going to say, this is how to be Greek. This is what to do. And whatever it is, and, and our dominant culture around us tries to do this same thing to us today, these four steps. The first one is this, isolation. You see, Daniel was isolated. They picked him up and they took him away from everything that he knew. He was no longer with his friends. He was no longer with his family. He was no longer with people who all celebrated the same day. I mean, you know what? It is really easy to worship God on the holiday when the entire nation walks to the temple together. Really easy. Matter of fact, pretty hard not to at that point. But he didn't have that anymore. And, and as he woke up and he looked out his window, he did not see the temple where he worshiped God that reminded him of the songs that they sang and those sorts of things. Nope, matter of fact, never would happen again. He'd look out his window and see a temple to a foreign God. He'd hear completely different music, see people dressed differently. You see, his people would even wear scripture called phylacteries on their clothes, but they, he didn't see anybody around him doing that anymore. And teenagers, once again, I want you to think about this. Daniel, as a kid, could walk into a temple. This is where they kept the scrolls. And he could pick up some scrolls out of a pottery jar. And he could read the word of God written down. But never again in his life. When they carried them off into exile and they they isolated him from his faith, from his community, from his family, from his culture, from everything. He would never again in his life be able to walk into the temple and pick up the scrolls and read the word of God. So teenagers, listen. See, here's the thing. Everything that he knew about God and how to follow God was up here 
from there by the age of 14. Too often, there were more young people hands over here if y'all wonder what I'm doing. Too often we have this idea, well, my mama does the one-year Bible reading plan. Well, I guess when I'm old and like my mama, I'll read the Bible all the way through too. I don't need to read it now. I'm a teenager. And we don't know. But we're going to discover everything that Daniel knows he knew at 14. Second thing that they do is integrate. The idea of integrating is to take the minority, bring them into the majority until they mix as one. Desegregation no longer is there a minority. We're all the same. Trying to put people in the midst where we don't recognize you're different anymore. We're all in the same place. What they did is they made Daniel live in the palace with the king. He didn't get to go and live over there in some private compound where all the Israelites could do their own thing and pat each other on the back and have their ways. No, he had to live right there where people would pass the meat that he was not eating. He'd just pass it on. I can't do it. They would pass the wine he couldn't drink. He was in the middle of everything. They were trying to integrate him. And they were doing the integration so that they could do the enculturation. The idea of enculturation is that their norms become your norm. Hey, come do our holidays with us. Do our festivals with us. Did you see the part where we read that they will be taught the language of the Chaldeans and the literature of the Chaldeans for three years? They weren't just trying to teach them about Babylon. They were trying to make them Babylonians. If you just want to teach them the language, hey, you need to know my language, so when I say go get me some wine, you can do it. Okay, we get that. But they didn't stop there. They said, we want you to know our story. We want you to know our literature, where we came from, who we are. I mean, you and I do this. I mean, how many of you, when you like watch The Patriot or you read a book on the revolution, makes you go, yes, I'm proud to be an American. Hi. Right? Or you read Lord of the Rings, you're like, hey, honey, can we move to Middle Earth? You know, I mean, we, we read the stories. The stories make us want to be part of the stories. And so they were trying to make them Babylonians and to enculturate them. And I just want to pause right there on, on step three or four. And we'll get to the fourth one in a minute. And let's ask this question. How does this happen to us today? Again, because we're like, well, that was a long time ago. I've never been carried into prison. This doesn't happen to me. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about isolation. Business trip. You and three other people have to go to a conference for work and guess where they hold it. I do not understand why every business trip I talk to, these people go to Las Vegas. Like, seriously? Yeah, all these business trips, Las Vegas, it really doesn't matter if you go to Las Vegas or not. But here's the point. They're, they're not all Jesus followers with you. Their primary designation is American or co-worker or whatever. Your primary designation is follower of Jesus, but you get into this car with three other people and they're not listening to WMHK on the way. And they don't get up early in the hotel and read their Bible. And they say, hey, we don't have an early session tomorrow, so after dinner tonight, let's go out for drinks. And, and, and let's, let's just have a great time or whatever. And it is hard for you because you are isolated. You're not at home in your church group. And you're not in your bedroom with your, you know, your wife and you both read the Bible together. You're not there. You are isolated. You're removed. And you've got to figure out how to do this. For every single one of us in the room, do you know the number one time, and again, young people, pay attention, this is more for you, the number one time above everything else in our country that every single one of us goes through that is the most isolating movement in our culture? Turning 18 and leaving home. Because you're on your own. And whatever values that Daniel did not adopt before leaving Judah, he didn't have. The way he lived in Babylon was based on the values he had before he left home. And that is what happens to us. 
Maybe it's, you go and you join the army, and now suddenly you're learning a whole slew of new words you never knew existed, right, soldiers? Come on. And, and maybe you're going off to college, and they're teaching you how to join a fraternity or this. Maybe you, you're just moving in with a non-Christian roommate and, and living down the street, but you are being isolated from everything you knew. And then we're integrated. But we try to fight that as Christians. Oh, I don't want to be integrated in the culture. I'm going to go over here, and I'm going to homeschool and not watch those movies. Not bashing you, we homeschooled as well. Hey, let me tell you what else we used to do because we didn't want to be a part of the culture and the demonic things the culture did. We would turn off the lights on October 31st and hang sheets over the windows and hide. Don't tell me some of y'all hadn't done the same thing. Yeah, you know, you're just like, I'm going to isolate from this. I'm going to not be integrated in this culture. And then enculturation where they want us to say that what matters to them matters to us, what's most valuable to them matters to us. Hey, come on, money matters, money matters. Work hard, ignore your family, don't go to church, go to work, make extra money, get three jobs. We want you to have your, our norms become your norms. And it leads us to the fourth step. Once they get you to there, then they get you to this one, which is identification. This is where everything about you is about saying, yes, I am one of you. This is my new name. Come on, you ever been to college? Like, I was like that. You know, you get the T-shirt and everything, and you're out there on the game. You don't look at those. I went to a college where we were Appalachian State Mountaineers. And we didn't, I didn't point out there at the football field and go, hey, I, I hope they win. No, I said, I hope we win. Because it's my identity. I'm one of you. I got the T-shirt. See, ASU, look, it's me. Come on, black and gold. We got this thing going on. They lost Saturday. There you go. I was sad. I haven't been there in 20 years. Why am I sad? Because I'm identified as one. Did you catch when they changed their names? See, although you can just read in there that they changed their names, I think it's really important for us to understand what was actually happening. Names have meaning. In that world, today we're just like, hey, what's the coolest name? baby name book? Oh, hey, the most popular name in 2016. Let's name our baby this. That'd be good. All right. No, back then, names spoke of your destiny, of your identity to your family. And, and I'm kind of weird because I still believe it should be that way. And I frustrated the mess out of my wife with all of our kids because God would, t- I would go and pray and say, God, who is this kid? And he would tell me the identity of the kid, sometimes down to the actual English name that we use to represent that. And she'd be like, oh, I think this one's a girl. And I'm like, no, honey, this one's a boy. No, it's a girl. I can feel it inside. I'm like, no, honey, it's a boy because in, in my country, we don't name girls Nathaniel. And God had already told me what this child was to be named and why. And so, like, she wanted every kid. She just kept fighting. Come on. Can we name this one Benjamin? Can we name it Benjamin? I want a kid named Benjamin. The problem is Benjamin means peacemaker. Anybody met my kids? <laughs> hey, peacemaker didn't work in our household. But she did just get a dog like two months ago. Guess what his name is? Benji. Benny, Benny, Benny. There you go. All right. See, here's the thing. God has a destiny for you. He speaks a name over you. And what enculturation and, and integration and identification, what the cultural assimilation idea is to say, let me take away the God-given destiny for you and let me give you a new designation. Let me give you a new title. Follow this. Daniel, do you know what his name meant? God is my judge. What does that say about his life? That's everything we see playing out. Hey, King Nebuchadnezzar, most powerful king on the earth, most powerful empire on the earth. Guess what? I ain't eating your stuff, man, because you're not my judge. God is. Hey, you, I know you're the servant of the king, but guess what? You're not in charge of me because you're not my judge. God is. Hey, all of you, y'all want me to come and do your thing? I'm sorry, because you're not my judge. God is. I'm going to live as though my name means something. God is my judge. And they changed his name to Belteshazzar. You know what that means? Oh, wife 
of the god Baal, protect the king. So instead of him going around going, I live for one God alone, every time they said his new name, it was a prayer to a false god. Hey, Belteshazzar, hey, O wife of the god Baal, protect our king. And by the way, here's something really funny I want you to notice about Daniel and his friends when they all got their names changed. Does anybody in here know the story of Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael? You know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know them by their replacement names, their curse names, their Babylonian names. But Daniel, we don't know as Belteshazzar. The name is never spoken again. When Daniel went down in history writing this story, he said, "Uh uh-uh, I ain't going down. I'm Daniel. I will be Daniel. And all throughout the rest of his story, he says, Daniel, I will not be. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh is gracious. Every time his name was said, it was a statement of worship. Yahweh is gracious. And his new name was, I am very fearful of God. He used to walk into a room and go, Yahweh is gracious. And now he walks into a room and they go, I am fearful of God. They were taking his identity and twisting it into the exact opposite. How about this one? Michelle's name meant, who is what my God is? Who's as great as my God? Who could dare compare with that? You know what they said? Oh, oh, no, 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 no. I am not going to call you who is great as your God. I'm going to tell you what. Here's your new name. Who is like my God? Who is great like Aku? That's what his name meant. Every time I tell that's right. I'm not going to let you go by your God's name. I want to make you go by my God's name. Azariah, Yahweh is a helper. They changed it into servant, one who helps. Y'all catch that? Yahweh is my helper. They turned his name into, no, now I'm just a helper of Nebo, servant of Nebo. You think this relates to us today? What happens when somebody changes your designation? And they say, hey, I got a new title for you. You're the CEO. CEO. I get the corner office. I can afford the car. I, I'm the man. I decide who goes on vacation when. I'm in charge, and all I have to do is ignore some other designations in my life. Sorry, honey, can't come home and play husband because I'm busy working on our, our career. But don't worry, I'm, I'm, I'm getting us to go to Disney next summer. Oh, hey, kids, I'm sorry I'm going to miss your game, but I'm a CEO, and it takes some priorities for me to, to be. I can't be at everything like I used to be when I was just your dad. Are you a lieutenant who says that's not good enough? I'm going to sacrifice everything godly to be a general. What is it in your life that the world has already given you or you are chasing a name that is not the name God has given you? Everything is in a name. Now, here's the most important thing for us today. How do we resist falling into the cultural assimilation process? Well, we do what Daniel did. What did Daniel do? He refused to give up his identity as a minority. He fought for his identity as a minority, constantly saying, I am not you. I'm not you. He wasn't mean about it. We talked about this last week. He didn't isolate. He didn't go over here and do his own thing. He did it right in the midst of them. He just said, look, I'm, I'm just not you. I'm just going to show you how to be my king. So when you're, when you're on that trip to Vegas and your coworkers say, let's go out and have a bunch of drinks, you're like, okay, that's great. We'll have a good time. I'll be your designated driver. And it's awesome because after two drinks, they're going to tell you everything wrong with your marriage. You get to tell them all what Jesus can do for you. You don't have to go and hide, but you've got to keep your identity as a minority. And I'm going to tell you the most important thing to do in that. Do you want to know what that is? You've got to keep the practices of the minority. 
You see, our culture says those things that Christians do are not that important. You can work on Sunday. You can work overtime so much that you don't have time to go to church. You, we, we talk about being in community and how important community is. Small groups where you look at somebody and go, dude, how is it like being a minority at your job? Let me tell you how it's like being a minority, minority at my job. I mean, can we pray for each other? Can we help you? Can we encourage you? You need that. Where are you struggling to live as the majority? Let's get together and have that conversation. And yet we're always like, well, you know, American culture, I'm really busy. Got a lot of things to do. You got Little League and you got this and you got that and got my third job to pay for my fourth car. And I've got to keep up with that. I don't have time for those Christian ideal ideas like a small group and reading my Bible every day. I'd like to read my Bible every day. I'm just too busy, man. I got to get up at four, get the one job, get the next. The most important thing that we can do to maintain our identity as a minority in exile is keep the practices of the minority. We've got to read our Bible. We've got to know the difference between what they say and what God says. We've got to talk to our God. It's called prayer. We've got to worship our God. It's where we learn about who he is. And we've got to be with other Christians who can encourage us and strengthen us. Don't give that up. That was for free. That was extra. So here we go. Finishing up the story. Wrapping this up. What is the result? Daniel refused to compromise. What is the result? As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, okay, teenagers, he's 17 years old, right? He was 14 a minute ago. Now we're reading this. He's 17 years old. At the end of those three years, at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none, none was found like these four. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all of the magicians and the enchanters that were in the kingdom. And then here's the cool part. Finish this sentence. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. That was 66 years later. Daniel is 80 years old because he refused to compromise. He had a position of of influence, of comfort, of good life. I mean, it was, he had it all. He was at the right hand. Four kings, four kings. Because he refused to compromise. Here's what I'm going to tell you today. My promise. It's God's promise, actually. When you refuse to compromise, God will always validate you. And when God validates you, man will promote you. We just saw it happen. Man will promote you. Our world tells you the exact opposite is a lie. You want to climb in this system? You better come have drinks with us. You better get drunk with us. You better not tell us you're a Christian. You better cuss with us. If you're a drill sergeant, you better do everything we do. You better be in our system if you want to get promoted because if you are weird, we're not promoting you. But that's a lie. The truth is this. God will validate you and you will be 10 times better than everybody around you because you'll be so focused on him and they may look at you and say, I don't want to go to your church. I don't like that there's a Bible on your desk, but you are so much better than everybody else here. You're in charge. I don't understand why you don't cuss out all of those other soldiers just like the rest of the drill sergeants. I don't understand why you're actually kind to them, but I tell you what, you're the best one we've got. We're promoting you. God will validate And when God validates, it's so undeniable that man will promote every single time if we will refuse to compromise. Here's the moral of the story today. Choose who you will be. Choose who you will be. Choose who you will be because who you are is a choice. They did everything they could to choose for Daniel. And he said, no, thank you. I will choose who I will be. 
I will choose who I will be. You're not choosing for me. I will not eat that. I will not wear that. I will not drink that. I will not do that. We're going to learn later when they said you won't pray. He's, oh, I will. Choose who you will be. These two words we read through so fast earlier in verse 8. Daniel resolved. Your question today is how resolved are you? What are you resolved to? Who are you resolved to be? You have to answer that question. You see, I grew up here in the South and I grew up in the Bible Belt and I was told there are certain things that are just automatic tickets to heaven and automatic tickets to hell. It's just the way it was. They were wrong. They were as wrong as could be. They told me, if you don't get a tattoo, the hair never touches your shirt collar and you don't drink, you're going to heaven, you're good. That's not the way that works. But here's the thing. I grew up with that idea, and so before I went off to college, I was resolved. Do you hear me? I was resolved there was something I would not do like every other college kid. I would not be one of them. I was not going to go down the road they went down. I was resolved. And guess what happened? I didn't. Y'all thought the story was going the other way, didn't you? But let me tell you what else. There were some things in my life that I knew God wanted, but they were so far over there, I didn't resolve anything. I didn't decide I'd never do those things. I didn't say I'd never be that person because they were so far from my thinking, I didn't even think I could ever do that. I didn't even think I needed to resolve to not do that. And guess what? I did. Because I was here. And then there was an opportunity to be here. There was an opportunity to be here. And the things that I did not resolve, that I would not do, and that I ended up doing, they damaged my faith very badly. I quit going to church and worshiping for a while, even though I already knew I was called to be a pastor. Talk about disconnects. Anybody been there? Feel just like, well, I say this and I do that. It's okay. God can work with that damaged relationships of mine, it damaged future relationships because I was not resolved. Who are you resolved to be? Choose who you will be. I want to close by talking to someone who may not know if you would call yourself part of the minority in exile. And then I want to make sure that everyone who understands, what does that actually mean? You see, we sometimes get this idea, well, because I am an American, I am a Christian. But that's wrong. Because I grew up in a Christian nation, I'm a Christian. No. Because I grew up, my mama drug me to church. No. What makes you a member of that minority in exile is when you look one-on-one, Jesus in the face, and say, you died for me. You didn't die for everybody here. I mean, you did, but that's not the point right now. You died for and I'm going to live for you. He's your Savior, and He's your King. And when you make those two declarations, when you resolve that those two things are true, then you become a member of His kingdom. You are then a part of the minority in exile. If you've never done that, I want to help you do that here this morning. You don't have to stand up or do anything weird. We're going to pray right where you're seated. Would you all join me? Pray something like this to yourself and to God. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. I thank you that you give me life in your kingdom. And I count it a joy to be part of the minority. I thank you for your love, for your mercy, and for your forgiveness. And my simple prayer today 
is that you will give me a life of great meaning and great purpose in your kingdom. Amen. Let's celebrate with those people. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. For more information about us, you can go to gracelife.me. That's gracelife.me. You can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash gracelifeme and on Twitter at gracelifechurch.com.